0: Here we go!
1: Neutron proton mass defect, lyrical oxidation, your irrelevant mass spectrograph, your electron volt, atomic energy erupting as I get all open on betatrons, gamma rays, thermal cracking, cyclotron, any and every mic you're on, track, your radium, if you're always your radium, molecules spontaneous combustion. jump Law of
0: death, proportion gain. Ink anyway, weight, I'm every element around.
2: Welcome to Spark Science, where we explore stories of human curiosity. I'm Regina barber Graff, astrophysicist and pop culture enthusiast. Today, we are going to talk about dark matter and dark energy, maybe gravitational waves and planet nine. But before we do that, and before I introduce our wonderful guest today, I want to tell the viewers that we have a guest host. If you have listened to past shows, you know that the only guest hosts I've had are people related to me. And today is no different. My guest host today is an actor. He actually has an IMDB entry and he is a hotel manager. My little brother, Ruben Chen. How's it going?
1: It's going well. Thank you very much. I, I can add the IMD page that you said. Entry, that's singular. <laughs> yeah. One entry.
2: Who got you into acting? I just want our listeners to know like, who helped you and supported you and made you want to do that to start with.
1: It was my wonderful sister, Regina Barber.
2: <laughs> oh, oh, that's right. I forgot. So let's introduce our guest today. Our guest is my colleague. Um, somebody who I've known for a good amount of time, lives at work down the hall from me, Dr. Ken Rines. Welcome.
3: Hello. Thank you.
2: How would you describe your work in like a couple words?
3: So I study what we can't actually see with our eyes or with light. So trying to find out what we can find out about the universe by watching galaxies move and studying how uh, structures change in the universe.
2: And that's basically the theme of this show. We're gonna talk about your suggestion, finding our way in the dark.
3: Right, seeing what what we can learn about objects in the universe using indirect techniques.
2: How did you get into this specific subset of astronomy? Let's all go in the time machine and now I see like baby Ken. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah.
1: <laughs> at six feet tall,
3: still. Yeah, six feet tall. Oh, yeah. There's a little shorter back
2: <laughs> Yeah. He was five eight at baby. <laughs> Did you, like, always love astronomy, like, as a kid?
3: I do remember a really cool astronomy book that I had in maybe fourth or fifth grade that had lots of beautiful pictures and talked about black holes and neutron stars, and it all sounded really cool. But I somehow never made the connection as a kid that this is something that people actually discovered at some point. And it, right. it took me. You know, many many years. You know, (laughs) high school or college to figure out that everything in that book had been basically discovered by uh, you know people going out and using telescopes and doing calculations to figure these things out. Did you go to any
2: like space centers and stuff like that, or science centers? And when you were a kid,
3: local science museum a lot, but not not really space centers.
2: I was never that lucky either.
3: I'd actually you know give a lot of credit to my my high school teachers. I had a couple of great chemistry and physics teachers. They were not only great teachers, but they were so enthusiastic about science in general. They worked with some people at the local university. They actually put on uh, physics demonstration shows uh, for like local school. Where was this? Yeah, where did you go? In in Minnesota. Okay. (laughs) okay. (laughs) I I think they even uh, performed once at Disneyland for uh, (laughs) what? uh, Because they they managed to put on some pretty elaborate shows. That's and cool. And it yeah. was very, very interesting just the way they approached everything. And one of the things that I remember, each of them made a point to tell everybody in the class repeatedly that how bad they were at science when they were in school. Yeah, and it, I do was, that a lot. it was fascinating <laughs> because they were outstanding teachers of science and, you know, did a great job, of you know, communicating ideas, and how exciting they were yeah. and working out the idea of, of science as a process. And like one of my... My physics teacher he would always set up these experiments and basically he would show us how everything was set up and then he'd say, "Okay, now your your class, your job is now to make a prediction and right. you have to predict what's going to happen with this." Okay. You know, then so we would spend most of the class doing that and then you know at the end of the class we'd actually get to find out if our prediction worked. And right. You know, one time it, our prediction totally failed. So then he actually uh, let a couple of us back into the classroom during during our lunch hour. And so then we
2: wow, you were that dedicated. It, uh... Wow, wow, <laughs> that's awesome. Good for you. I love that they went to Disneyland. Do you remember their names, these teachers?
3: My chemistry teacher's name was uh, Hank Ryan, and my physics teacher was uh, John Barber.
2: Oh, okay. Nice. Barber's a good name.
3: Yes. No relation. I think. <laughs> no. No relation. This no no really relation. This is can't have nice things. No. <laughs>
2: Or, or nice names. Yeah. yeah. So you have this awesome like high school experience with really good science communicators, and then you go to undergrad. And was it different? Was it a different way that they taught science
3: for undergrad? I went. I actually moved from Minnesota down to to Houston, Texas. So very, oh, wow. no, very the different same, environment.
2: Totally <laughs> the same. What are you talking about? I've yeah, the, never the,
3: the been best to either. Was, the best was uh, on winter break. I'd get on the airplane in Minnesota where it was 20 below zero and mm-hmm. get off the, the airplane in Houston, in Houston. and It was like 80 degrees. Yeah. Right.
2: You're like, what is happening?
3: Yeah, Dynamic. it was a very different uh, vibe, certainly. Because, you know, they're. vibe is a good um, Yeah. So it was at Rice University, which is a midsize university, not not as small as some small liberal arts colleges, but not not as big even as Western. It's sort of middle size, but still the introductory physics classes were 150 students in a big auditorium. Mm. And, oh, wow. You know, it was Not fun. surprising You know how different that was from, from the high school classes even. You know, it was still fun, but yeah, it wasn't quite as engaging or interactive. I guess right. interactive would be the, yeah. the biggest thing there. Did
2: you get to do any research related to what you're doing now in undergrad or was that all grad school?
3: Eventually, I did a couple of uh, summer programs. So after okay. taking an astronomy class and realizing, hey, this is sort of coming back to that that old book that I had read as a, as a kid and realizing, oh wait, there were people that actually figured all these things out, and right. there are people doing that now, and mm-hmm. maybe you can actually you know get paid over the summer to do this. And so there were a couple of summer summer internships like that, and I was lucky enough to do a couple of those. Uh, one at Northwestern looking at gamma rays from the, the center of the Milky Way.
2: Oh, that's awesome.
3: And then one at the uh, Smithsonian Observatory in Boston where uh, I was studying x-rays coming from giant clusters of galaxies, and then now I study the galaxies and the, the clusters of galaxies. So right. similar objects, but right. uh, different specific focus.
2: So did you go into Rice thinking, like, I want to be an astronomer, or was it finding your way...
3: Um, a bit of finding my way. I'd, yeah. I'd sort of move in high school like in the direction of physics because I, I was fortunate to have some really good math classes and uh, get involved in some math programs where I was able to take really college level math classes as a high school student. And, Which is always nice, but yeah, and sometimes was,
2: impossible. <laughs>
3: <laughs> um, and then the physics classes were really fun because I could actually, I could really see there where the math classes were were useful for that. For, right. Whereas. For high school chemistry, at least, the math level isn't as as rigorous. So it was fun to see, you know, things like ideas in calculus directly used in the, in the physics classes. Right. And just which, the, the whole idea of this, like, fundamental science and, you know, finding out what's going on on the smallest scales, what the, the building blocks of the universe are.
2: So Minnesota to Texas, and then you went to Harvard, mm-hmm. which was... Totally the same as all those places, right? Absolutely, so. <laughs> yes.
3: And you
1: lost me at high school math, so. Yeah,
3: <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: How is Harvard different from all of these places? very <laughs> i don't know. Um, i just i just assume right? compared get, to houston oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> another another place i haven't been
3: so rice was a very good school and there were a lot of great students there you know many other physics majors you know much smarter than me that were there so it was great to get that experience yeah. and then you know certainly at harvard you know there were some some of my grad student compatriots who did you know just absolutely amazing things you know even in their their thesis work and wow so it was just a lot of fun and then yeah. the astronomy department has a special a unique feature that there's the the Harvard Department of Astronomy, but then there's an institution, the Smithsonian, actually has an astrophysical observatory that's located in the same place. Right. And so they have this giant center that has like 200 PhDs, you know, large number of senior scientists, all doing doing all sorts of types of astronomy. A huge amount of science, especially astronomy, going on. All sorts of wavelengths, all sorts of objects. Influences everywhere. No yeah. Like.
2: <laughs> if I was there, I'd feel completely lost. I don't know. Yeah, so really even hard. the
3: building is famous for having. Many waves of getting lost, just walking around the building. (laughs) So mentally
2: you're lost, physically Physically
3: you're lost.
2: Emotionally you're drained. I like this. Let's get into then these like definitions of some of your research and some of the stuff that I think our listeners are really excited about, this idea of dark matter and dark energy. Why don't you tell us kind of more about your research and then kind of fill in the gaps of those definitions, which my brother here, who knows a little less than me about this subject. Yes, I can can spell science. Good, Mm -hmm. I can barely. If you're lost, Ruben, please tell us, because we're gonna...
1: No, I like this. I don't know, most people probably can't see his face, but you're smiling throughout all this, so it's very (laughs) very engaging, I'm
0: I'm
3: drawn into it. So by all means, I'm learning, I like this.
2: Tell us more about your research and fill in the blanks.
3: So the basic idea of, of a lot of my research actually goes back to Some of the physics ideas that I think I I first learned in high school, um, just things like gravity is is a force. It pulls on things. You know, we know that when you drop something on the Earth, it, it falls towards the Earth. And it can also do things where you can have, you know, an object going in a circle. And so the Earth goes around the sun because the sun is pulling on the Earth with gravity. And that same basic idea, you can apply that almost anywhere in the universe. So you can figure out the sun and all the planets are going around the Milky Way galaxy, and you can use that to figure out what that gravitational force is, which tells you how much stuff there is in the Milky Way. And then on larger scales on on these clusters where you have not just one Milky Way galaxy, but you have 50 or 100 Milky Way sized galaxies all orbiting each other. And you can actually measure how fast they're orbiting each other and use that to figure out how much total stuff is in the the cluster of galaxies right and the the exciting part there is that you find out that when you add up all the the matter that has to be there there's a lot more than you can account for from the stars that are in the galaxies which is very weird because we think most of the normal matter that we're used to thinking of atoms and molecules a lot almost all that matter is locked up in stars or there are other ways of being able to see it so there's a lot of stuff in these clusters that is not something you would find on the periodic table.
2: If we just take a step back for anyone who kind of like hears the word gravity and then hears stuff, we need to just make sure that gravity itself is due to mass, right? It's, it's directly right. linked. These movements of objects, these kind of orbits, the gravity that being exhibited or the movement that's being exhibited tells us something about the mass related in that orbiter. Or Involved in that um, orbit, I guess we can say.
3: Roughly speaking, the more mass you have, the stronger gravitational pull right. you have. That's
2: what I'm trying to say. See, yeah. see you know what I'm saying. No, right? I totally got that. Okay. I, mean. I mean, the mystery is, right, and when did this happen? When was this like mystery kind of or this question first asked? We're looking at these orbits. We're looking at these movements of galaxies in clusters. And then we have this missing mass. When did that start? Like, what year was that?
3: So the, the first... Published evidence of that was by this guy Fritz Zwicky in 1933.
2: Right, which so is yeah.
3: becoming a, a really old problem by now. Yeah, and he originally called it the the missing mass—that there's a lot of mass, a lot more mass in these clusters than is apparent from just counting up all the stars in the galaxies. And you know, he said this is a problem. Fritz Zwicky is a very entertaining astronomer. He had a very eccentric personality, very strong opinions, incredibly creative. He had all sorts of ideas about all sorts of Different things about supernova, and neutron stars. He was a notoriously ornery, and really, uh, people, is there there, a lot of people didn't like him. <laughs>
2: wow, that is not what Cosmos told me.
3: Oh, he's he's a very colorful character. Mm. There, I, I think there are some stories that wouldn't quite work on radio,
2: oh, excellent, yeah,
3: fantastic.
1: Let's hear these but, stories. No, <laughs>
2: After, during the break. Oh.
3: But yeah, he had lots of you know lots of amazing ideas. Mm-hmm. Some of them were. Amazingly far ahead of their time. Others of the more spectacularly wrong. Right. But that's you know you take you take the good with the bad. You know? Right. I mean, it's you just
2: volume, right? Let's just. Leave. <laughs> this is 1933. You said, and then yep. when did we start labeling this this missing matter as dark matter?
3: So that that came mostly a few decades later. So partly because Zwicky was such a colorful character, um, many people sort of lump this in and well that's that's wiki's sort of crazy idea and uh, maybe we shouldn't put too much faith in that and so then a lot of work a lot more people started to believe it with later work um, especially by um, an astronomer called uh, Vera Rubin who studied yeah, individual like, galaxies
1: yes! yeah, I like this one
0: yeah
3: <laughs> and so she studied um, spiral galaxies like our like our own Milky Way and did the same type of exercise of you know in this case, looking at stars going around galaxies rather than galaxies going around a, a cluster of galaxies. And okay. so doing the same basic type of, of analysis, but now applying it on a different scale, where you can make the measurements, you know, you could argue you can make the measurements a bit more robustly there, at least at the time. And she was finding a very similar thing that you found that the the speeds of the galax the stars around the galaxy were so fast that you can only explain that by having much more mass there than you have just right. in all the stars. Mm. And so again this idea that there's some missing mass that's not glowing, you can't see the any light from it. So there's some sort of matter there that's not emitting light. So therefore, I'm not sure who first came up with the the term dark matter, but that was when the whole community started to take it very seriously was that, you know, now this was you were seeing a similar phenomenon in different types of objects. Which is always one of those things that's great to see in science where You get not just one piece of evidence, but a different piece of evidence that points towards the same thing.
1: Welcome back to Spark Science. Uh, we are here today with uh, Dr. Ryan's talking about dark matter and dark energy um, with your guys' favorite host, uh, Ruben Chen.
2: Guest co-host.
1: Yes. Favorite first primary host.
2: <laughs> yes. My brother is great. Continue,
1: Dr. Rhines. I guess just going into it, obviously, like I was saying earlier, I can spell the word science. I could probably spell dark and matter because that's my uh, fiance's last name. Um, yeah, it is actually it is. good. It is. Yeah. We were trying to think. Who's about also it. from Linden? Who is also from Linden? Um, and my
2: brother, just for listeners, is also from Linden. Also graduated. Obviously, because he grew up with me. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. Anyway, go ahead. So you were you're uh, asking I, a question. So
1: yeah, I, I guess I mean I'm not entirely lost, but I, going back to the viewers, who are much like me, uh, what is matter? How would you define matter? That's a
3: great question. So. The physicist's definition of matter would basically be something that that interacts with gravity. So it uses, if you have something that has mass, some, something that has matter, that matter will interact with other bits of matter with a gravitational force and will pull on other bits of matter. And so that's where the, the problem comes from, is basically trying to figure out, we know that there's something there, something that has mass that you can say it has this many kilograms of, of stuff there. but Nobody actually knows what that stuff is. And that's where it's utterly mysterious. And it's amazing how longstanding this, this problem has been. It's completely hypothetical. Basically, yes. Awesome. So there are lots, lots and lots of ideas. The first suggestion was in 1933. And there have been, you know, decades of, you know, very smart people trying to think up creative ideas of what this matter could be.
2: Because we can't see it.
3: Right, because by, by definition, you can't see it th- yeah. or it wouldn't be dark. And it seems to behave in a way that it actually doesn't interact with with light at all. And that's right. in astronomy, that's what you usually do, is you study light coming from distant galaxies. Now, there are some particles that we know that that act sort of like that. So there's a particle called a neutrino, which is Love involved them. in little nu- and nuclear reactions. And, yeah, yeah oh. so our sun is powered by by nuclear reactions in its core. And so the sun is producing these neutrinos, at a tremendous rate, and they're going out in all directions, but the neutrinos, they don't interact with normal matter very often. They do very occasionally, but a neutrino can go through the entire Earth and not interact with anything. There's a a great statistic that there's something like uh, 20 trillion neutrinos going through your body every second, and not one of them actually interacts with any of your atoms.
2: I love it. You're going to make conspiracy theories of people will be like, that's where cancer oh, yeah. comes yeah. from. I feel like well, Birdman. No, because the they never interact. That's yeah, the, uh, yeah, That's exactly. the amazing thing. Yeah.
3: So neutrinos are, are something that – and people actually suggested neutrinos as being a great candidate for dark matter. Right. They have the the great advantage that it's a particle that we know exists. Um, There's lots of good evidence that neutrinos exist from – That was
2: huge in the 90s, right? It was like yeah.
3: huge. But. There, there is one problem. First of all, neutrinos, they just don't have enough mass to represent the dark matter because there are various estimates of how how many neutrinos are, are out there and there are various ways of trying to figure out how much mass neutrinos have. And there, there are now pretty good limits on what, those, what the mass can be. Um, so neutrinos exist, but they don't seem to have enough mass to make up dark matter. They might have a small amount of mass, which Leads to some other interesting stories. But but okay. it turns out that that small amount of mass isn't enough to explain um, the orbits that you see in galaxies or the orbits you see of galaxies going around clusters.
1: So dark matter is not the evil matter because I was pulling Bizarro World. Like there's
0: oh. matter
3: and oh, there's yes.
1: dark matter. <coughs> yeah. So well, but,
3: another thing it's not yeah. would be um, antimatter. Right, so oh. like that—that's—that's that's another thing that like you'll hear about all the Superman. But that's what yeah. I was saying. But about. he's not evil; bizarro. he's just
2: confused. Like, let's let's be nice to him, right? Well, like, he <laughs> just his he grew up in a different environment, and he doesn't understand our environment. That's that you're—he's not evil. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying. <laughs>
3: he's so evil. it's okay.
2: not antimatter, which yeah, you can cause... explain to our our listeners as well.
3: Yeah. So antimatter is. Um, so there are particles that, that that we know about. You know, atoms are made of protons and neutrons and electrons. And for every particle, like a proton, there's an antiparticle. So a proton um, has an antiparticle called an antiproton, creatively enough. Right. Um, <laughs> We're
2: good at naming now things. There's,
3: there's a, a big difference between antimatter like that and, and dark matter. Because antimatter, if you have an antiproton and a proton, if they ever meet each other, they annihilate a giant burst of energy. And so so that they definitely goes back interact. To yes, they interact very strongly. <laughs> right. and they produce two uh, two gamma rays, two particles of light that have a lot of energy. So if you had a pocket of antimatter somewhere uh-huh. out in space, that pocket of antimatter would be interacting with regular matter and creating its tremendous numbers of gamma rays and so you'd be able to see you know, some part of the sky glowing in gamma rays because of that antimatter. So... We know it can't be antimatter. We know it can't be neutrinos. So there's this whole list of things that it can't be. Mm -hmm. And so then, you know, again, particle physicists get very creative in their ideas and they say, okay, maybe there's some type of particle that we don't know about. We don't know exactly what it is. It might be related to supersymmetry ideas, maybe vaguely related to string theory, but no clear prediction on exactly what that would be. So just like particles have antiparticle partners, the idea with supersymmetry would be that each particle also has a supersymmetric particle that is similar to it. So you would have... Okay. Um, that
2: doesn't annihilate.
3: Right. Okay, got so it. Then so you'd you have... yeah, Right, oh, so you'd it. have a... Proton and then a a supersymmetric partner of a proton or an electron. That's just
2: something else that we don't really know what it is. Right. Okay.
3: Right. So an electron has a supersymmetric partner called a selectron. Uh, That's The names get absolutely horrible. Right. uh, I think those are cool. I like those names. So
2: first they become – they're just really bland and then then they become horrible is what you're saying.
3: Right. And so there are a lot of these supersymmetry particles. And so one popular idea has been that – one of those supersymmetry particles might represent dark matter.
2: Got it. I do want to bring us back to what we were talking about before the break because some of our listeners might just be like, why can't, let's say, planets or this new planet 9 Mm -hmm. or something, why can't, you know, other matter that is matter that we're used to but just doesn't emit light because it's not a sun or something, how come that can't, make up for the dark matter? I do know the answer, but I, I would like you, <laughs> right. like, you can you can yeah, kind of elaborate question. on that because I hear that a lot.
3: Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's, and, you know, again, a few decades ago, this was a, a very contentious question about whether dark matter could be explained by things like planets that are dim matter they're not completely dark but they don't give off a lot of light and so if you had lots of free-floating planets that could explain where that missing mass is or where the at least you know dim matter if not completely dark but there are other ways of detecting a lot of those things that um that astronomers have spent tremendous amounts of effort trying to detect evidence of of things like if you have free-floating planets or Very dim stars or white dwarfs or solar mass black holes, all sorts of things like that. They actually create gravitational lensing signals. So if one of these particles goes between us and a distant star, you'll see that that background star get brighter for a short period of time. And then it gets dimmer again. And so a bunch of astronomers made a, a big survey to monitor... You know thousands of stars and try to look for these little flickers and they did find some of the flickers but then when you figure out how much mass that that uh, flicker that actually. represents yeah. it's, it's a tiny fraction you know it's there you know like neutrinos there there is mass there mm-hmm. but it's not right. nearly enough to explain all of the dark matter right measure it and people
0: always say my you got you got God. God. Step to me i a rap
2: So when you say it's like it's not it's not neutrinos it's not these planets what we're really saying is that that is a so tiny fraction of what this unexplained matter could be.
3: Right right. So almost all the dark matter is something very weird that right. doesn't show up as anything you would find on the periodic table. So it's not atoms, it's not molecules, yeah. nothing made of atoms or molecules like like planets or stars, which is very weird. And so that's why the particle physicists get very creative and then the experimental physicists they, they also get creative and try to build new detectors because some of the, the models say that, like neutrinos, these things won't interact with normal matter very often, but very occasionally they will. Mm. And so if you build a really big detector and look really hard for evidence of these particles, that maybe you would occasionally see some of these interactions. And it's a you know fascinating idea, and the experimental searches for dark matter particles have been going on now for decades, you know, about 50 years now. And they keep on finding nothing. It's tremendously hard work for...
2: It's a similar story to maybe the other thing I I would like to talk about today. And and we can kind of link it to when you said lensing, gravitational waves, right? I mean, I remember being in grad school. I, I went to Wazoo, Washington State University, and there's a good amount of people there that work with LIGO, which is... Uh, <laughs> oh, I was hoping you were actually
3: yeah. like Laser, Laser interferometer, interferometer, gravitational wave observatory. Ob- observatory,
2: yes. Yeah. So I remember uh, presentations from LIGO you know, quarter after quarter, I'm like, mm-hmm. we're gonna detect gravitational waves. We're gonna do it. We're so close. And it was just like right. yeah. like, I don't know, I don't want to say decades. It probably was though, decades of
0: decades a decade, of work. yeah, yeah a decades
2: yeah. of work of just like nothing was happening.
3: But yeah. finally,
2: just this last week, I mean, something happened. So before we go into like the definition of what gravitational waves are, let's kind of take a step back and talk about lensing and talk about maybe, space. You're nodding your head cuz you kind of sure. I think you know where I'm going with this, right? So so let's talk maybe about what is lensing and then we can talk about gravitational waves.
3: Right, right. Well, lensing uh, gravitational lensing brings us back to the the dark matter idea yeah. very very well. In the same way that gravitational lensing, so the basic idea the the classic picture is that you try to picture space as being a an infinite rubber sheet and then you put Bowling balls or golf balls on the rubber sheet and they create distortions. And then, if you send other things uh, past, you know, close to the bowling ball, their path will get um, distorted a little bit. But it's um, like
2: that thing in the the mall, right? Like the the thing where you put coins in, right? And you yeah, drop you the coin them. in, and it kind of goes around and around, mm-hmm. and then it gets sucked into. It Pulls it in. Right, right. Or if you right. have enough velocity, it would stay there for a while. Like it's going to orbit around for a while. I, and I've
1: it... wished that for years. Never happens.
2: Well, yeah. <laughs> so, there's a lot of <laughs> right. wobble and yeah. stuff, but.
3: Or if you're a particle of light, you would go. Your path would get bent. So instead of going straight in a straight line past that. That uh, that little well. Your yeah. your path. Your path would get deflected a little bit. You're getting pulled, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so that um, yeah. creates this distortion, and so the for a cluster of galaxies, it actually works very similar to the distortion that you see if you if you break a wine glass and look through the the stem of the wine glass, you can see that it'll stretch out objects that are behind it. So things will get stretched out and make little circles around the the stem of the wine glass. Yep. And so a big cluster of galaxies does the same thing because it has a lot of mass, so it creates a lot of distortion in space time. And so then background galaxies, there's light from galaxies that are very far away that gets bent by that gravitational uh, disturbance and it gives you a signal that you can measure. So basically the the more massive the cluster is, the more distortion you get in the on the shape of the background galaxies.
2: And sometimes it can give you a distorted image from the background galaxy or sometimes it can give you multiple images of that of that background galaxy. Right. Which are kind of I don't know Or halo, I'm moving my arms like around in a circle, but like haloing around the massive galaxy cluster. And just for our listeners, when we keep on saying galaxy cluster, what we mean is that we live, we right now live in the Milky Way galaxy. But the Milky Way galaxy is right next to other galaxies like Andromeda galaxy, which you can actually see. Mm-hmm. next to Cassiopeia, if you look up in the sky. So we have a whole bunch of galaxies kind of around our own galaxy. In the universe, there is a lot denser clumps of galaxies than what we live in right now. So that's what we're talking about, just right, to clarify. Right.
3: Yep, so the Milky Way is in a small group of galaxies that has two big galaxies and a few dozen small galaxies. Yeah, And then these clusters have, instead of two Milky Way-sized galaxies, they have a lot. several dozen. No, a yeah. hundred Milky Way-sized <laughs> much galaxies. Larger. yeah, yep. yeah. yeah. And yep. m- Much bigger, they have probably thousands of these dwarf yeah. galaxies. So that means more distortion? Right, exactly. Yep. Yep. So, so more, right. so bigger, so more bigger mass. Bigger distortion. Yep. Yep. Yes, yep. I understood that. Hey. He's yeah. like you, learning my friend. Yes. Yeah. I should take a class from you. Yeah,
2: <laughs> you could.
3: But the gravitational lensing for the clusters, one of the really cool things there is one of these things that we like to do in science is when you have an idea, especially a weird idea like, hey, this cluster is filled with dark matter that is made of right. some... Weird stuff that we've never seen before. You'd like to figure out can you actually get multiple lines of evidence? And so now you have the same object, you know, you have the same cluster of galaxies. Yeah. And you can figure out, you can measure the speeds of the galaxies going around, and you can use that to figure out how much dark matter there is. But then you can also look at this, and if you yes. can measure that gravitational lensing effect, you get a totally independent way of trying to measure how much how much stuff is in the cluster, how much dark matter it has.
2: Like you just said, more mass means more distortion. So yeah. if there's a yeah. lot of distortion, then yeah. you know there's a lot of mass there. And, and then you can
3: do that. The really tricky thing is, you know, see if you get the same answer using both techniques. And, right. oh, yeah. and, you know, by and large, you get basically the same answer, that you need the same, both measures tell you that the clusters have the same amount of dark matter. And so that's one of those great things where it says, okay, either that dark matter really is real, we have multiple lines of evidence that give us the same answer, or nature is extremely creative in its ways of confusing us. (laughs) (laughs) I like that answer.
2: and that's very important these distortions can give us mass that like you were saying i think this is probably new for a lot of people too that not just the planets go around the sun but like you said the stars also go around the center of the milky way and galaxies like the milky way also orbit around other galaxies so everything's so, moving everything's moving mm-hmm. everything's moving and that's something yeah. that's very new for so the earth our is students. the flat The Earth is not flat. No. (laughs) Oh, I can't believe that's gaining momentum Uh, right now. It's gaining a lot of momentum. Oh my God, conspiracy theory. It's because X-Files came back on. I think conspiracy theories are just like rising. Yeah,
1: Mulder and Scully are like, the Earth is
2: flat. No, they would never say that. No. No, they would never say that. So we talk about this idea of lensing, like I said, with the, the distortions. When I learned about gravity waves, it talked very much about these very massive objects moving around and then... They're sending ripples in space so help me describe that better <laughs> again right so
3: <laughs> the cartoon example is you know going back to the rubber sheet if you had right if you had now two bowling balls so each bowling ball is making its own distortion on that rubber sheet and now those bowling balls are orbiting each other so they're they're going in circular orbits around each other
2: as Dr. Renz is doing this with his hands too yeah he's, I'm, I'm, he's <laughs> orbiting the two objects so, orbiting, so, two so if bowling you did balls. that if you,
3: if you move or move the bowling ball around on the rubber sheet, it's going to shake the, the sheet, and it's going to send little distortions that are going to travel outwards. Or ripples. Yep, yeah, little ripples, exactly. Yeah. It's sort of like dropping you know rocks in a in a still, still pond. You know, right, see but now you're
2: moving out. the rocks, and you're doing this. Right. Yeah, and making those ripples. Which yeah. is still
1: moving
3: your hands. So you can't see that. Pagina is yeah. now moving. Right. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. <laughs> yes.
2: We're, we all are now. <laughs> We're moving simultaneously. Yes. Radio. So,
3: so as those ripples are traveling out, they're actually carrying away energy from the system. And so there's actually a, a long debate. Um, this is one of these... One of the reasons why people debated a long time if LIGO would ever see anything because they right. didn't actually know if you have two black holes orbiting each other. It wasn't clear if black holes would actually eventually merge or if they would just orbit each other for a very, very long time where you would never see them actually merge. The, the big excitement, um, so this is just on on Thursday, so February 11th, 2016, so the, the dawn of gravitational wave astronomy. Yep. So Oh, yep. A whole new era of you know totally different way of looking at the universe.
2: So many happy astronomers. Oh yeah, Like, so. <laughs> so many. And just to clarify too, like black holes are super massive. Like I well, there are super massive black holes, but black holes right. have a lot of mass. So that's why when they're they're moving around, they are, like you said, more mass, more distortion. So that's why you're saying right. two orbiting black holes.
3: Right, and then yeah. Also, these black holes are were very close to to each other. And then what happened is they were slowly losing energy, you know, radiating energy away in these ripples. And then they got closer and closer together as they did that, and then mm-hmm. eventually they merged. And when they merged, that produces this this characteristic signal that uh, has been described as a chirp. So So, so it's here, very
2: uneventful though. So <laughs>
3: there are these gravitational waves that uh, get higher in frequency. And so when we talk about sound waves, sound waves, if you have a higher frequency, that's a higher pitch. So it's sort of like a whoop. So you know, like if you had you know, drop water into, mm-hmm. uh, you know, listen to water dropping. You hear a little bloop. And so that's effectively what they, the signal that they heard on on this gravitational wave observatory.
2: Which I don't know if we want to get into explaining that observatory, but we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about finding objects using gravity, like let's say Planet 9 or maybe even in history with some famous planets. Mm-hmm. Finding things using gravity and then we'll talk about pop culture, because I love it.
0: That's our team. Step inside the party, disrupt the whole scene. When it comes to beats, well, I'm a teen. I like my sugar with coffee and green. But I gotta keep it going, keep it going full scene. sweet to be, sour to nice to be. When I'm am not too keen. Try to change the world, I'm a plot and scheme. Mario Z likes to keep it.
2: We usually end our show talking about pop culture, and I think it's a really easy way to talk about the popular stuff that's happening right now related to, Ken, you said finding things or detecting things or inferring objects through gravity. I know that there's this very famous story about one of the funnier planets. Planet Nine is like getting a lot of press, right? This idea that there's this other planet in our solar system that we didn't know about, and we found it. How did we find it, and how does that relate to astronomy history?
3: That's one of the fun things is yeah. nobody has found it yet. Ah, uh-huh. uh, so there's so it's just hype. <laughs> well, hopefully not, yeah. we'll, but we'll, we'll find out. Yeah. That's that's where astronomy is a lot of fun because, you know, there are new things happening every day. And right. Partly it, it links to this history in astronomy of finding new objects by weird things that you notice in orbits. And so the most recent announcement was basically that some other astronomers had made this discovery, discovered all of these large things, not quite as big as Pluto, but things that are probably maybe dwarf planet size, so not as big as Pluto, but you know fairly massive things in the outer solar system.
2: There's a small dwarf planet in between Mars and
3: Jupiter. Yes, yes. so Mars
2: and Jupiter. What is that like a third of of Pluto's in size? what is, What is the like proportionality? I don't remember.
3: Um, I, it's small it my. Head. yeah, it's, it's about three hundred kilometers okay. in diameter. I
2: keep on thinking like a third or a quarter or something like that.
3: Right. So yeah. it's um, Ceres, which is the the right. largest asteroid in the right. asteroid belt. And which so is still
2: pretty big. I yeah.
3: Mean. <laughs> yeah. So it's the, yeah. the largest, largest asteroid in the solar system. There's Pluto, uh, which is also, you know, very far away, mostly. So Ceres is mostly made of rocks, like most asteroids are made of rocks. Pluto is made of both rocks and a lot of ice. And so a lot of these new objects are sort of like Pluto, that they're made of some mixture of ice and rocks. And some of them have very weird orbits. And so a few years ago, some astronomers basically pointed that out and said, hey, we found some of these dwarf planets, they have these weird orbits, and they sort of speculated, well, maybe you can make a model where those are, they get their weird orbits if they interact with a massive planet that's that's very far out in the solar system. The announcement a month ago was a more detailed model where a couple of astronomers looked into this and figured out that they they could, in fact, make dwarf planets have those weird orbits if you had a Neptune size or Neptune mass planet that's in the very, very outer solar system. right? So one of these things where it's dim matter, it's not dark matter because it would emit some light, but so little light that no one has been able to see it so far.
2: Right, it would be really hard to detect. Right. Through photometry.
3: Yeah, Yeah. so you'd you'd love to take a picture of it. And that's, you know, I think most astronomers, I think even the the people who, who authored this publication where they said, here's our model where we say, you really do need to have this planet in there to produce these weird orbits, of the dwarf planets. Even they would say that we really have to get a picture of that planet to confirm that theory. It's a fascinating prediction right now, and so they're trying to get time on one of the biggest telescopes in the world, one of the biggest optical telescopes, to look at this from the ground. Maybe in the future, you might be able to use an infrared telescope from space to see this planet. But so far, it's too dim to have been detected. So it's one of those really exciting things where there's a good possibility that it exists, but there's no confirmation yet.
2: But I mean, this has happened in history of, of weird orbits and then people saying, well, there must be something there and then actually finding something.
3: Right, right. So historically the there were many planets that were known for thousands of years by people being able to see them with their naked eyes. Mm-hmm. Right. And then William Herschel discovered the planet Uranus just by looking for things in the solar system. And then by Making very careful observations of the the orbit of Uranus, they noticed a couple of different astronomers noticed that Uranus's orbit had some had some weird stuff. And yeah. one way of trying to explain that those uh, differences from the the expectation would be if it was getting tugged on by some unseen matters, some at that time dark matter that was exerting a gravitational pull on on Uranus. There was a French astronomer Le Verrier, who actually made a prediction got in touch with an astronomer and said, you should put your telescope at this position. Right and now. Yes, at this time, <laughs> yeah. look right right here. Mm-hmm. And I forget the, the astronomer who, who observed it, but found Neptune within one degree of the prediction. Oh, wow. So there's this amazing confirmation of using these anomalies from gravity and then finding matter that had been previously unknown.
2: Many people confuse dark matter and dark energy, and right. what is the difference? Before we kind of talk about, finish up gravity waves, talk about interstellar and pop culture, I wanna talk about this idea of dark energy. So give us yes. a, your best definition of that and why it's not dark matter, or maybe it is. It's
3: almost certainly not, but yeah. Yes. yeah. Dark matter is one of these things that's totally bizarre. It makes up most of the total matter of, in the universe, the stuff that interacts with gravity. Yeah, And we have absolutely no idea what it is. Dark energy makes dark matter sound like we know what we're doing. Dark energy is even weirder. So about in 1998, uh, there were some astronomers that were studying supernova and discovered that we've known for a long time that the universe is expanding. So the space between galaxies gets larger and larger Mm -hmm. with every year. And what they found is that you would expect that the galaxies would actually be slowing down because they're pulling on each other by gravity. But instead, the astronomers studying the supernova found that the distance between galaxies is actually getting larger at an increasing rate, that it's actually, they're accelerating apart from each other. Very bizarre observation, and basically a desperation to try to explain what that is. Something might be doing that that could be associated with the vacuum of space-time. When you don't understand something, you say, we're going to call it this thing and then put dark at the front of it. <laughs> so is
2: what we've learned from this episode.
3: Yes. Yeah. So in this case, you know, there's an idea that it might be associated with energy of the vacuum, so then it got the name dark energy. Because it, it doesn't emit light, doesn't interact with ways that you can see it easily, other than its influence on making galaxies accelerate apart from each other. Now that does actually intersect with my, my own research at some level, because one of our ultimate goals is to try to measure how clusters are growing with time. Because as the universe evolves, you have the Big Bang, galaxies are moving apart from each other, and then you sort of have this battle between galaxies moving apart because the whole universe is expanding, and then gravity trying to collect things together and form groups of galaxies, form clusters of galaxies. And so that sets up a, a competition between dark energy trying to pull things apart and gravity trying to pull things together. If you can make measurements of the masses of clusters and make good enough measurements of that, you might actually be able to tell what's going on with that competition and use that to measure how much dark energy is in the universe. Okay. And whatever this dark energy stuff, the energy density of it is actually larger than not just regular matter, matter but also dark matter. 95, 96% of the energy density of the universe is either dark matter or dark energy. So it's right. either the stuff that we don't understand very well, or it's the stuff that we really don't understand.
2: On that downer, let's go on an upper and talk about (laughs) pop culture. (laughs) So how, and I ask every guest this, how is your science represented on TV and movies? Is it represented well? Are there are things that are done well and things that are done horribly? I just mentioned gravity waves again, but that was represented in interstellar, not in the way that we described it earlier mm-hmm. before our break. What annoys me when I hear dark matter and stuff, I, I think of red matter, which happened in the Star Trek reboot, which was not explained at all. It was just like red matter does this, the end.
3: Yes. So that's, Enter the plot device. Yes. Yeah. And
2: so that was bad representation. But yes. can you think of any like other bad ones, or some maybe possibly good representations of your field or anything well, we've been talking about here?
3: You know, there are certainly representations of of astronomers and scientists in pop culture. You know, you can go from the Big Bang Theory, where you have you know the highly stereotyped perceptions of you know what what astronomers or physicists are like. Now, I, I have met people like uh, like the they, characters they on that show. Exist. They do exist, but there I are also to. many normal people. Uh, right, we're normal. Um, yes, like Gina. See,
0: it's yeah. weird because you can say person.
1: that, but yeah. when I see you both, I'm like, <laughs> you guys are exactly like these people on the show.
2: Uh, nobody that looks like me is on that show.
1: There's no
3: Asians on that show? Uh,
2: there are no Asian Mexican women on that show. You win this that round, Doctor yeah. light. And actually the only people of color have accents on that show.
3: Probably the best. Sort of positive depiction, I think would go, you know, you have to go all the way back to the the movie Contact.
2: Yeah, I agree.
3: And that one, I mean, really, you know, it's not obviously not completely correct. It's a fictional portrayal, but it gets a lot of the the spirit of of how the science is done correct.
2: Except for the headphones, because you listen for radio waves, except for that. I agree with that, the, the depiction of contact. I think it's hilarious that Matthew McConaughey, we were talking at the break, that he's in that movie and he's an in interstellar. Yep. I think he's found his niche.
1: And in your Lincoln at home.
2: I want to actually ask you some questions, Reuben, my brother. I'm Reuben. Um, <laughs> your depiction of astronomers is me, your sister. Absolutely. But anything else from like TV, what do you think of when you think like dark energy, dark matter or astrophysics? from tv
1: from tv or movies oh man i mean and how I,
2: are we contradicting that or maybe we aren't
1: i you know because my knowledge of it is just so minimal i do yeah. i do think interstellar you know mm-hmm. um star trek uh, we were talking about star trek white dwarf earlier and i was thinking red dwarf i'm thinking bbc so right. those are where, where right. all my minds are going on um, right but my perception of, of astronomers and in the movie world i mean i don't think i have too many it's not like there's um, astronomer um, action superheroes out
3: there uh, fighting crimes and uh, well
2: dr. Light is an astrophysicist. Okay
3: But occasionally there's an astronomer who discovers the asteroid that's just about to hit the earth.
2: That's yes.
1: true Yes, I mean you have it the wasn't... Armageddon moments. Yes. where It's
3: like it's twice the size of Tejas And then
1: they're but, all gonna die,
2: but you don't know his his or her name, yeah. right? You just know Bruce Willis
1: I just know Bruce Willis. Yeah, yes Yes, just Bruce Willis. From
2: that movie though. I'm just yeah. I'm trying to think of anybody else.
1: No, Owen Wilson's in that movie. Liv oh, Tyler, Owen Wilson, Steve Who's Buscemi. You so, yeah, are, I guess I did know something. You of them. are the
2: actor, so I don't yeah. know these things. I think you're right that like the the essence of astronomers isn't totally portrayed well, but we all are different, so it would be nice to see not the stereotype of the scientist the Crazy introverted, don't talk to people scientist.
3: Yes. Some of us are like that. Yes. So, <laughs> Not all. Yes. Yes.
2: Other than Contact, I'm trying to think of and Interstellar and The Martian. The Martian is that we just yeah. talked about that we just reviewed that movie and that got a lot of praises for being fairly Which, accurate. A
1: great book too. And, yeah, it's it a good a book. Great book. But
2: I can't think of anything when you're dealing with this mysterious thing called dark matter or this myster- very, very this mysterious thing yeah. called right. dark energy. I mean, it almost lends itself to being a plot device or right. or something crazy in Star Trek. Like, I can't even think of anything.
3: There's a series of children's books by Philip Pullman. And I think <gasps> dark That's matter is right. one of the plot devices there. And it's one of those interesting things where, you know, on the one hand, it's nice that it's it is tied to this real scientific idea, but the way it gets used in the novels is... Practicing. totally unlike what dark matter actually is.
2: I do want to end though on what even if it has nothing to do with astronomy, even if it has nothing to do with dark matter, Go what on. is your favorite pop culture right now? That's what I'm going to ask. I've been asking a lot of my my guests that.
3: Maybe the Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, rap battle about the, the flat earth. That's a, so that's that been a entertaining thing.
2: It is, right?
1: The Flat Earth thing is everywhere.
2: It's everywhere. (laughs)
1: Everywhere.
2: I think there's a lot of conspiracy theories associated with dark matter and dark energy too. So it's, Mm -hmm. um, with great mystery comes great controversy. I mean, Flat Earth, there is no mystery there. So I have no idea what that's about. Yes. Yeah. Um, So with that, I want to say thank you, Ken, for being here. Thank you for enlightening us about A lot of stuff, I actually learned a lot or maybe we're just reminded of a lot of things. Thank you for coming. Ruben, thank you for being an awesome guest host. I hope you had fun. It was a lot of fun. You'll come back probably another time when Jordan is not available. So I want to thank you.
0: All right, thanks for having me.
2: Thank you for joining us. We just spoke with Dr. Ken Rines about the dark universe. Our show is entirely volunteer-run, and if you'd like to help us out, click on the button Donate.
1: If there's a science idea that you're curious about, send us an email or post a message on our Facebook page, Spark Science.
2: Today's episode, Finding Our Way in the Dark, was produced in the KMRE Spark Radio Studios, located in the Spark Museum on Bay Street in Bellingham. Our producers and engineers today are Eric Fabioreta and Nathan Miller. Our theme music is Chemical Calisthenics by Black Alicious, and our feature song today is Intergalactic Planetary by Beastie Boys.
3: gold, tin, iron, platinum, zinc. When I wrap you think. Iodine nitrate activate. Right, uranium, the only difference is I transmit sound. Balance, with some balance, then you
1: add
0: a little talent in. Careful, careful with those ingredients. They can explode and blow up if you drop them and they hit the ground. <laughs>